Well, hello everyone and welcome to the Sub-Zero Coffee Podcast. I'm Kirk Pearson and I'm the host of the podcast. And would you look at that? I've got some intro music now. Moving on up in the world. Today we've got an excellent guest. Today's guest is a uh, very renowned barista competitor. He's living in the safest country on earth at the moment. Uh, that is New Zealand. He's the former New Zealand and UK Brewster champion and all-round good guy. Today's guest is John Gordon. Welcome, John. Thank you, sir. How are you? Oh, mate, fantastic. Um, all things considered, I'm fantastic. We're we're back in lockdown in Melbourne, as I was just saying to you before we started um, recording. But uh, so everyone must stay home unless they're going out for one of the four reasons, which are going to the supermarket, exercising, going to work, and I think receiving healthcare or something like that. But anyway, so we're all hunkered exactly. down. Stay, yeah, stay home and listen to uh, podcasts, right? Stay home and listen to podcasts. This is the Sub-Zero Coffee Podcast, I think so. Exactly, but yeah. would, would you believe it, John? The, the, the humble little Sub-Zero Coffee Podcast has a few sponsors. Awesome. Yeah, so That's we've got to, got, to, got, to get, got to give a shout-out to Slayer Espresso, Make Coffee Better. Sorry, yeah, Make Coffee Better, and to Riverina Fresh. It's not fresh unless it's Riverina Fresh, but... Um, yeah, how's things, John? And it's New Zealand seems to be relatively coronavirus free. Well, not relatively. You are coronavirus free. We are. We've uh, we've been out of the hardcore lockdown uh, for for a little while now, and um, I think we had a total of seven weeks um, of uh, yeah the, the proper proper lockdown where no one was allowed to do anything, um, and it definitely seems to seems to have paid off and. Um, yeah, I definitely feel grateful of, of living in New Zealand right now and grateful to the government here of, of how well they've um, handled it. And, and I understand it's been very difficult for, for many people and many businesses and, and, and things like that, but we, we are out of it and we are, you know, returning back to some sort of normality. And uh, as I was saying before, we you know, coffee-wise, things seem to be picking up really well and um, hopefully we can just kind of keep on this on this plane and um, and actually just you know hopefully a lot of Kiwis can just travel around New Zealand and and have holidays here and then help kind of boost the uh, economy domestically. So yeah, yeah well, very very lucky and fortunate. Yeah, exactly. And um, correct me if I'm wrong here, John, but when when the coronavirus situation was uh, sort of getting uh, sort of when it was flammable, I guess you could say, in New Zealand, when, when there were cases beginning to rise, uh, Jacinda Ardern ordered a, uh, a stage four lockdown, which is basically you can't leave your house at all. Is that correct? Yeah, yeah. We were, um, everyone, um, yeah, even my, my work, so we kind of went to our, our lockdown, um, I think it was a day earlier, um, and some people were um, starting to work from home anyway that could. Um, so we kind of jumped on it then. And, yeah, once once we went into that lockdown, it was, um, yeah, stay at home unless you're going to the supermarket or to, uh, yeah, you know, to receive medical attention. Um, you know, there were, there were some horror stories about, uh, you know, mothers giving, giving birth to, to babies and then, you know, being... Uh, you know, essentially booted out of hospital straight away, and partners not being able to be able to go in for the birth and things like that. So it was it was intense. It was definitely intense. Um, but you know, seeing being on the other end of it, it's um, it's well and truly paid off. So well, mate, I would um, 
Melbournians and I guess many other people across the globe would, would, would very much love to be in that situation. But anyway, this isn't a podcast about coronavirus. <laughs> this is a podcast about coffee and we've got John Gordon here, so we better lift up the spirits. John, we're going to... I always like to start the podcast by introducing the, um, the, the person I'm interviewing to the listener. Um, let's, let, let's, let's start at the, 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 the book of Genesis in the story of John, John Gordon, per se. Where were you born, John? I was actually born right where you are right now. I was born in Melbourne, uh, Queen Victoria Hospital, which is, uh, as I understand it, is no longer there or part of the building is still there. Um, yeah, and grew up in uh, in Victoria until I was about eight, and then our family moved up to the Gold Coast. The Gold Coast, the Goldie. Yeah, well, Gold I mean, Goldie. I I always Queenslanders will will perhaps skewer me for saying this, but <laughs> I always just tear tear into Gold Coastians um, for no good reason. I mean, uh, the 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 weather up there is fantastic. Um, the coffee up there is getting better and better from my understanding and, you know, there's there's virtually no cases of coronavirus in Queensland as well. So in many ways, you know, they're more they're far more advanced than Melbournians, I, I, I got to say, which is a hard concession for me to make. But, um, yeah, the Goldie. And so from the Gold Coast, where'd you go? Uh, so when uh, when I was about, whoa, I mean, about 20, 22, 23, 24, something like that, um, I moved back down to Melbourne. Mm-hmm. Um, and was uh, at the time was looking to kind of venture out of my my previous life of um, being in the security industry and um, security and industry. I was I was in security and and things like that, and it was very interesting. Some of the stuff that I used to do. Yep. Um, and yeah, and I wanted to get into you know things like kind of management and stuff like that. Um, and I. Um, I ended up landing a job at the casino, um, uh, being one of the, the duty managers at, um, at one of the bars in the casino. Um, and at the time, uh, my ex-partner was um, had started working for a small coffee roasters um, in Albert Park called Icoco. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I would go along to uh, some of the... Um, um, some of their tastings and things like that, and um, and and started to get a bit interested in coffee um, back then. So interesting, and it's funny you bring up security because, like, I'm I'm not saying you were you were in this particular position as in in the industry, but say for example, John Gordon was a bouncer at a Gold Coast nightclub. Um, oh, he was. He was <laughs> on appearance, John. You're a um, you're a tall, burly. Bald man with tattoos. I wouldn't want to try and break into that 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 nightclub, so to speak. Like, you know, you look hey, like hey, you beat a man up. Yeah, but back in the day, I was I was generally the smallest guy out of the out of the lot. So you don't um, say. Yeah, it just goes to show uh, some of the guys that I used to work with. So. Well, mate, you yeah. you filled out quite nicely. Did you go to university at all? I didn't. I didn't. Um, I actually. Uh, if you you want to go back that far, um, I was um, I was a, a budding, uh, hopeful kind of future NBA basketball player um, back in high school, and and you know through throughout my whole teens from um, the age of about twelve, I think it was, um, 
all I cared about was basketball. Um, and stupidly, I didn't really care too much about my education. Um, and uh, as far as I was concerned, um, you know, I was going to make my living for the rest of my life um, being a professional sports player. Um, that didn't turn out too well. And, and I ended up actually um, through some unfortunate events, um, actually ended up walking out of school and, and never finished high school. Interesting. Um, yeah. Well, see, yeah, that, that, was, that was very nearly me. I'd, I, I wagged a lot of school and um, ended up finishing it in the end. But, yeah, it's, uh, for such a for – such a, for, and we'll get on into this later on in the podcast, but you have got seem to have quite a, quite a good con, uh, grasp of science and engineering from, from an outside perspective. That's, I wouldn't have known that about you, John. Yeah, a lot of that kind of came quite later. Um, I, I, you know, because of things went very sideways for for my basketball career. Um, I had uh, at the time I had attempted to. Well, my my math teacher actually um, got me to go back to school after walking out um, for for a little while, um, and I really got into maths and science then. Um, I was probably one of those annoying students that um you know would never have to study or, or anything like that and could walk into a test not knowing what was going on and, and easily pass it um uh-huh. to, to much of my friends um discussed um but yeah I, I you know short of um you know unfortunately not being able to um, play basketball anymore at that time I, I i just couldn't handle not playing basketball um, and then ended up leaving school. So, um, yeah. Interesting. Um, Such is life. Yeah, no, well, it seems to have worked out well for you so far, John. Um, and so taking into account your basketball um, interests, wh- who, who, are you, who were some of your idols back then? So I'm not sure, I'm not sure uh, how old you are now, but, you know. Yeah. Um, it, it's quite interesting because um, as we see the, the – um, uh, Michael Jordan documentary come out uh, recently that was a uh, for me that was just an insane emotional flashback to um, you know to those those intense sports years that I had in my life and um, so Michael Jordan was a was a huge um, inspiration for me and still is um, for, for a number of reasons now um, but also um, uh, players like Charles Barkley and and probably uh, almost my most favorite was Dennis Rodman. Um, I think he's many people's how, most favorite now. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Just because of how, how different he was. And, and um, you know, I was my, my kind of, I guess my, my playing style was um, like a mix of um, kind of Charles Barkley and Dennis Rodman, I would say. Um, but yeah, that was, that was probably my three um, favorites um, or inspirations growing up so yeah well they're they're absolute badasses and um yeah that was probably one of the best documentary or series i've ever seen you know mm. you, i was just i think it, it got released on a monday night here in australia and my housemates and i were just always you know oh gotta gotta make time for this the last dance is on but yeah no i didn't know about i didn't know that about you john it's um that's why we do it that's why we introduce the person before we introduce yeah. the coffee professional but you you did sort of mention uh, a little bit of how you were introduced to 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 coffee, um, having your partner uh, working at a coffee roaster. How what at what point did you sort of a start having an interest in coffee, and then 
perhaps be at one point did you feel like that could be a career for you was did, did you start out think uh, in specialty or was it commodity talk us through that yeah there's the, there's an interestingly large gap um, between those two points it was um, I, I do remember very specifically because um, I would go along to these tastings before I got um, into kind of working in coffee um, and I remember you know tasting a, an Ethiopian hurrah and and that moment of which I, I think it's it's kind of almost that that kind of coffee is almost everyone's um, you know penny drop moment um, the cherry yeah, popper. it was yeah that cherry popper it was it was you know there are you know you should be tasting blueberries in this coffee and it's like oh, holy mackerel I actually taste um, blueberries in this coffee and that was a moment for me of I guess you know realizing that there is more to coffee than meets the eye and um, and I remember at that point um, you know Saint Ali was was very fresh at that point um, with the previous owner Mark Dundon and and I would go into um, Saint Ali and just see all these weird kind of things written up on the board and, and would just start ordering coffees randomly and um, and just started to discover this whole new world. Um, and then I was lucky enough to be offered a job um, with no experience whatsoever and actually getting paid more than what I was previously um, as, as a barista um, at this cafe in Albert Park. Um, and, and, you know, that was, that was the beginning for me and just um, with no experience whatsoever, just dive straight into to making coffee and, um, yeah, and then and then all of a sudden got fascinated about latte art as well, and and just the obsession grew. That's it's interesting because I didn't know that about you until today. Because obviously I work with Todd Suter, and he's a massive fan mm-hmm. of yours. And he said to me, um, "Oh, John used to work for Sonali." I said, oh, "What? I had no idea." But I, I know you've got a very long and distinguished coffee career, John. But I didn't know that about you. That was interesting to to find out. Yeah, no. So yeah, it was um, it was working at that at that cafe in Albert Park and then yeah and then on, on my off days I'd go into St. Ali drink as much coffee as possible and um and you know really then for me that was because I, I just I lived in in South Melbourne so I lived in Albert Park as well so uh, you know I lived in my own little bubble and um and yeah and it was just uh you know something really interesting um I actually I remember I was probably been a barista for about six months um, and I remember going to uh, an information night about um, uh, uh, Victorian barista championships. And back then I was like, what is this thing? You know, um, and I remember, you know, I think Dave Macon was talking and, um, you know, started to yeah, really realise that there's there's a, a whole other world here um, in, in coffee. But I was, I was very lucky working at this place in Albert Park that, you know, we were roasting coffee and I was exposed to really good coffees. Um from the, the very beginning and, and exposed to really good coffees at St. Ali as well. So Yeah, well, it's very it's a very fortunate position to be in at the beginning of your coffee career. From St. Ali or uh, from that point in time in Melbourne, where did you go then? Because my understanding is you were spent a bit of time in the UK as well. Is that right? Yeah, so I was, I was in Melbourne for, um, I think it was two, three years. Um, and yeah, really getting into coffee. Um, and that's, that's really all I did. I just obsessed and, you know, back then I started pulling apart machines and, and got interested about these things that weren't, you know, being done on a regular basis. Um, and from that point, yeah, moved over to the UK, 
my older sister had been living over there for uh, for quite a few years at that point because um, my father's English. Um, so, you know, we were able to get our, um, our British passports and it made life very easy to, to go and live and work in the UK. And, um, and yeah. What were you doing there? Um, to start with, um, for the, I think it was, I think it was only about three months, actually. Um, I worked for a company called Taylor Street Baristas. Um, they a lot bigger now. Um, so it was, a uh, two brothers and a sister who were originally from, um, Sydney, I think, mm-hmm. um, had set up, um, this little kind of, um, they were like a, a concession inside a, a, a food store type thing. And then after a few years, they, you know, opened their first cafe and, um, and grew and grew and grew. But I, I worked for them, um, just making coffee for a few months. And then from that point, I actually got, uh, got a job working for an events company um, who, you know, they would go around and, and supply um, equipment um, and mobile bars um, and baristas for, uh, you know, exhibitions or, you know, particular events and um, things like that. Like they did, um, we did uh, quite a few years in a row uh, backstage at Glastonbury um, and things like that, just making coffee for, um, for all the A-listers and things like yeah, that. Yeah, no, just making coffee for them. That's no big deal. Yeah, it, it was an amazing experience because I, I got to make, um, you know, thousands of coffees a day still. So I was still really on that kind of front line of, of making coffee. Um but I also got to travel all throughout Europe um, and, and go to events like that. Um, you know, there was a, one of the Glastonbury's where, you know, we were making coffee for Beyonce and Jay-Z and, um, and Kings of Leon. And, and I, I was actually, the, and this will probably be a bit, sound a bit weird, but um, uh, because of my, um, my dad's kind of musical interests um, growing up, um there was the, the guys from crowded house um backstage as well and i was more starstruck by those guys and making coffee for them than i was jay-z and beyonce and uh and that so mate i reckon if a, i bumped i reckon if i bumped into neil finn i'd shit a spring chicken it would be you know, know, right? <laughs> yeah, it was yeah that that for me was just the absolute highlight like uh, you know getting to stand there and make coffee for them um was just amazing so yeah, I got. I, I was very, very fortunate to be, you know, in those kind of positions, um, and and still making um, amazing coffee. So, and uh, mine's thing was you spent a bit of time at Square Mile, or yep. So from there, um, I yeah, from that company, um, that events company, I was with for a couple of years or something, um, and at the tail end of that, I entered my first barista competition in two thousand nine. Um, and didn't do too bad, but it was a very kind of challenging experience because I never, I was always afraid to, to stand up and talk in front of people and things like that. So it was a, um, a, a terrifying experience the first time I'd done it, but I managed to um, get through to the semifinals and I think I finished like 14th or something in the semifinals in the UK. Mm-hmm. Um, back then there was, you know, 80 plus competitors throughout um, the UK, which was um, amazing. Um, and off the back of that, I actually entered my first latte art competition and managed to win the UK latte art championship. Hey. Um, and then at that point, um, James and Annette, who had, had founded Square Mile Coffee, um, were had just started Square Mile and 
um, they were looking for a delivery driver and, and I just and it was part time and and I went for the job and they were kind of a bit blown away they were, of why I would want to come and be a delivery driver for them and I, I just said that I wanted the opportunity to work with them and and um, and that you know I saw the potential in in what they can do and what the, the business can do and, and how much I can learn from them um, and that I would you know you know, it was basically taking a 50% pay cut um, and having to travel an, an hour and a half um, to and from uh, to and from work to every morning in the underground in, in London um, just to get there. So it was a, a huge sacrifice, but definitely worth it um, because within you know within six months, um, because at that point they were the the distributors for Senesso as well. Um, and I managed to, um, you know, get a hold of, um, start, you know, starting to do all the servicing for, for Square Mile and um, and things like that, and jumped on the roaster and and really kind of dived in head first. And is that is that is that kind of where your, uh, where, how would I say it, your sort of tech uh, tech branding coffee develops? Was it at that point? Do you think? Yeah, I had been with with the events company previously. I'd been servicing all of because we had a, a huge fleet of, of machines, and um, and I really got into it then. And then it's it's always been something that has just stuck in my brain. Um, I, I can't really honestly explain it, um, but you know, pulling apart a machine and just figuring out how things work, and then being able to put it back together and it actually still it works was. Um, was a huge bonus um and and yeah i once i kind of got into uh you know under the hood of the senesos and, and things like that i really started to um you know kind of push the boundaries of of my own understanding and knowledge and and then i just you know i would obsess over those kind of things and do as much research as possible and um yeah well and really, it really yeah where does that lead to? So, how does that lead you to New Zealand? So, obviously, you've got um, you run a business called Gorilla Gear now. Um, you've told me before what you're doing now uh, a few years back, but I've forgotten. Getting old, John, so I forget a few <laughs> things here and there. And um, so, you're living obviously in Auckland now. You've got Gorilla yep. Gear. Gorilla Gear specialise in. Correct me if I'm wrong. You're making um, sort of making parts for coffee grinders. Correct. Yep, aftermarket um, uh, burrs for, for grinders. So just a, f- a few different models. Hopefully another one coming out later this year. Um, but yeah, and then yeah, consulting and things like that. So it's uh, it's been an interesting kind of um, transformation from you know working in the UK and, and getting involved in, in uh, manufacturing companies and, and things like that. So. Um, yeah. I'd like to yeah. ask John, what's the difference between uh, in in practice? What's the difference between the factory burrs and the burrs that you offer, the aftermarket burrs? And you do it for a few different brands of grinders. Mm-hmm. The only burrs of yours that I've used are the Mazza Titanium. Uh, what are they coated with? Teflon coated burrs. Uh, they're coated in DLC. DLC carbon. Yeah. Diamond like carbon. Yeah, black coating. Yeah, and I was I was impressed because usually with burrs you need to season them. It t- takes quite a um, take takes a you know you've got to use a bit of coffee to season the burrs. Yeah. Um, but yeah. with yours you don't need to. Why's that? So yeah, years years ago, um, 
this kind of goes back to my scrum model days. Um, and actually, firstly, when the uh, the Mythos was essentially still a prototype, there were five um, prototype Mythos um, made originally, and we had one at Square Mile, and, and there was a, a box of um, different types of burrs back then um, that came with the grinder to, to test out and play around with. And, and I got interested in, in things back then. And some of these some of these birds were coated in some crazy stuff that um, would take a long time to season. So if you think a, a standard set of steel burrs, um, you know, takes a bit of bedding in and it's frustrating and things like that. And and these other ones that were even harder took even longer. Um, and and so for me, I started to just I, I couldn't understand why why people were were doing this manufacturers why they were doing it and why they weren't doing some form of pre seasoning. Um, so I, I came up with a bit of a way back then by using a, um, a, a tumbler or a polisher. Um, it's just um, like a, a domestic kind of home use one that people would use to polish rocks or polish, um, you know, jewelry or things like that. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I started to play around with, um, with that kind of stuff and different types of um, uh, abrasive media uh, inside this, this tumbler. So it basically vibrates. Um, and I would put burrs inside that and, and, and um, essentially try and um, gently, uh, uh, you know, season or um, basically kind of make it so that it's um, the, um, the abrasive would run in a similar direction to, to the way that coffee would um, on a set of burrs as if they were inside a grinder. Um, so I thought, you know, there's something to this. Um, and I couldn't understand why more manufacturers didn't kind of do something about this, considering people were either, you know, blowing loads of coffee um, on, on pre-seasoning. I, I knew even back then that a lot of, you know, wholesale account managers and things like that would just burn through um, coffee just to be able to season it. Or, you know, baristas were struggling when they'd get a new set of burrs um, for weeks on end and, until they would bet in. So um, I kind of, at that point it had taken um, that to another level when I'd started working with um, San Remo on a, on a couple of projects with them. Uh, one of which was a grinder project um, that I'd taken to San Remo of, of one of which I designed myself mm-hmm. um, and started working with a, a, a burn manufacturer in Italy who, who are basically, you know, they were the, um, you know, they're, they're basically the, the kind of kings of, of, of making burrs in, uh, globally. They they still make burrs for, for most grinder manufacturers. Um, so I've kind of taken that idea to them of, of like, you know, this is, a, I feel like this is a, at least a, a decent direction in, in being able to have a sustainable process um, uh, to be able to pre-season burrs that, um, you know, is, re- is repetitive and, and and, and it's um, not wasting any kind of any type of media like sandblasting and things like that, where you've got a lot of waste as well. Um, and is this and a yeah, sense of, kind of does this sort of bring out a sense of frustration for you with regard with respect to sort of grinder manufacturers? Like, is, <laughs> is there an is there an element of they could do a whole lot better but choose not to? Yep, hundred percent. Because hundred percent. I'm not even going to try and beat around the bush there, but yeah, yeah, yeah. because yeah, because you know the, uh, you've got um, you know to to give you an example, you've got the Malconi EK forty three, and it's probably uh, in practice one of the most rev- it's it's a, it's a grind that really has allowed um, 
baristas to take their coffee to the next level mm-hmm. uh, if used correctly. Now, mm-hmm. anyone new to coffee um, or who isn't in the industry or has got an EK and they're wondering why the hell their coffee doesn't taste good, it takes quite, it takes quite a bit of work to calibrate your EK um, and, uh, to, to perform at a really high standard. And the, um, so, for example, you need to align your EK so that the burrs are of, on the same sort of on the same sort of axis, would that be mm. sort of correct terminology? Yeah, yeah, yeah. There's a, there's a, I mean, two, two kind of main um, alignment um, uh, avenues to go down. And, and, and it goes for all grinders. It's not just the EK as well. Um, when you start diving into and, and looking at other ways to, to be able to measure other types of grinders, um, they're all just as bad as each other, to be fair. Um, and, and that's where you see some of the newer kind of um, uh, boutique manufacturers um, like Lynn Weber or uh, Cafe Tech coming out of Seattle, um, uh, things like that, where they're, they're taking the time or they're, you know, they're having their parts machined at an extremely high tolerance um, so that these kind of things aren't a problem. Um, but obviously the things that come with that are uh, more costs involved mm. with a, a higher precision. Um, but it doesn't say that, you know, it's not to say that, you know, the manufacturers out there uh, of all coffee grinders can't step their game up in, in terms of having tighter tolerance levels um, to, to be able to have, you know, two, two pieces of metal just be as close to, um, you know each other as possible and, and, and as aligned as possible so um, yeah yeah well I've, I've spent many hours aligning AKs and um, you know when you when you're new to it I don't know if you had the same experience John but when I was working at um, at St. Ali and um, I decided it'd be a good idea to pull apart the EK at night and, and realign mm. it it took me six hours after work um, and you know in in that six hours you just thinking I'm just panicking, thinking, oh, damn, I'm not, the coffee's not going to taste good tomorrow. I'm going to be in real shit. Um, it, can be quite a, it can be quite a stressful process. But, yeah, I think that's, that's, um, that's, a, that's a flaw in, in grinding manufacturing that hopefully is fixed in the future or who knows. But I mean, Yeah, hopefully. It's, uh, at the end of the day, it's, um, and, and some of these manufacturers do know um, there, there are ways to be able to solve this and whether that's, um, you know, taking the, the whole alignment tool thing to the next level, um, you know, has definitely something that's been um, discussed and, uh, and approached, um, not in the best possible way, but it has been, you know, definitely discussed. And, and the way I see it is, you know, if there's the right tool made for, for the right thing, then it's not, you don't necessarily have to, um, you know, have, thousands and thousands of, of this tool made to be sent to all around the world. They just need to be on a production line at the end of the day um, to be able to calibrate these things and check them before they go out to customers. Well, and um, you know, I, I should also point out, I'm not, I didn't come in, uh, I didn't invite you on and I didn't come in with the intention of um, having a crack at grinding manufacturers, but um, just, just a bit of feedback. I, I use the EK43 every day. I couldn't work without it. It's a very important piece of, machinery but i think for other newcomers it could it could certainly be made a lot easier but here we are um at at the end of the you know the goal for everyone um and and i'm sure even growing manufacturers would agree is to have tasty coffee right 
Yeah, of course. Um, so if, if there's an easier way for us to be able to do that or if we're able to explore coffee even further um, by having grinders that actually work um, the way they should, um, which I can guarantee you that you know, once you get a once you go from uh, having a grinder that's misaligned um, to a grinder that is functioning properly, it's you're opening up a million and one doors of, of what a coffee can actually do. Well, I put and it to you. Exciting. If I were to put it to you, um, or put a question to you, John Gordon, if I was a uh, cafe operator and I was uh, not too let's say skilled in the arts of aligning an EK 43 and you know, it's not something you can be, you can just do um, automatically. It takes quite a bit of, you know, watching mm-hmm. YouTube videos and, and reading and stuff like that to be able to do it properly. Do you think it's worth, um, I don't know, bringing an expert in and paying them, you know, a couple hundred bucks to align your EK if it's going to be aligned for six months? Is that a worthwhile transaction? You know, is the trade off there? a cafe who wants to get i don't know higher extractions out of their coffee and 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 more flavor yeah i think so um and, and if you kind of hit the nail on the head right there if you're if you're able to obtain higher extractions on your on your grinder whatever grinder it is um and the and the way that i kind of communicate things to to my customers with my burrs is uh, you know you might be able to get a higher extraction but that also actually means if you don't necessarily favor that higher extraction you can actually use less coffee to obtain actually a better result than you were getting before on a lower extraction so and i know coffee roasters won't like this but at the end of the day um if you can use a gram or two less coffee to make something tastier um then you're going to end up saving that money anyway down the line or it's going to pay for itself getting a professional in to actually um to, to align the products for you. Well, there you go, baristas around the world, boys and girls, and everyone in between. There, there we have it. If you want, um, if you want better, tastier coffee, perhaps it's worth paying a little bit of money to get your EK aligned by a professional. And you know, if you if, if that's the way you feel about it, John Gordon, I think this might be a service that Sub Zero Coffee offers in the future to Melbournians, just between you and me. Um, yeah. It's yeah, pretty... and, and start looking at other grinders, right? Uh, you know, I've. I've done the same thing on Mythos before. I've done the same thing on, on loads of other grinders where you start doing the measurements and you see how bad they are. It's just not accentuated as much with espresso or traditional espresso grinders. Um, but when you do align a traditional espresso grinder really well, again, it's a game changer. Yeah. And, you know, I should point out again, we're not here to have a crack at anyone in particular. We're just, you know, making a point that if you align your grinder properly, your coffee will be infinitely yeah. better. But if, uh, you, you, you sort of raised an interesting point there, John Gordon, about using less coffee to make better coffee and to get, you know, who wouldn't want to use less coffee to make better coffee and make more coffee? Um, if you can use anything, if you can get any sort of efficiency dividend out of any product that you offer, mm-hmm. you should go towards that. I'm particularly fascinated by the research that was conducted by Michael Cameron and Christopher Hendon um, and their research paper that was... Um, I think the title was called Systematically Improving Espresso. Um, yep. You're familiar with the research yourself? Uh, a tiny bit, yeah. Well, if I can summarise it um, and, cre- and and do do correct me if I'm wrong at, at, any, at any point here, John Gordon. Um, basically, Michael Cameron has published a paper that is peer-reviewed um, that has uh, that is sort of um, stated that you can get make consistently better coffee – 
by using a lower dose, in fact, 25% less coffee, um, mm-hmm. lowering your pump pressure and increasing your yield and lowering the, um, you, can, you, can, you can grind significantly coarser, thereby your coffee will extract at a much faster rate to achieve a consistently better espresso. Um, your thoughts on this and have you, have, you, have you experimented with it at all? Yeah, I mean, w- without a doubt, I'm I'm there with them 100. percent um, You know, back in uh, you know 20 <clears throat> when would it have been 2013, 2014, um, <clears throat> when myself and uh, and the likes of Sasha Sestik and, and and a few other people were working with San Remo on the the Opera machine, we were you know we were playing around with with lower pressures back then i remember um when we first released uh the opera the very first prototype um at host milan in i think it was 2013 um i actually we had a three group machine and i had set up uh one of the outside groups i think it was a far right hand group with a higher flow restrictor so it had a one millimeter flow restrictor in it um, and we bumped um, down the the pump pressure to I think it might have been somewhere around four or five or six bar, um, and we were doing you know uh, back then you know that that kind of um, lungo or, or um, you know very large espresso shot um, and semi kind of filter coffee style um, shots out of that machine back then, mm. um, and you know th- th- there was definitely great results back then um, with you know not the greatest uh, filter baskets and and not really having a a, a greater understanding of um, how and why this was working but it was working so that that was one of the things that I really loved about being able to mess around with pressure on a espresso machine and then you know starting to ask that question to a lot of um, engineers and, and coffee people of going well why why are we brewing at nine bar when when i'm getting a lot better results on even traditional espresso machines bumping it down to eight bar um and and having less channeling and and things like that and being able to grind differently and dose differently and things like that so it's you know there's a lot of a lot of value in in exploring this a hell of a lot more well yeah and i implore anyone listening to this podcast to go and go ahead and uh look up that paper and um because if you if you are willing to have a play around with it um You'll you'll be pretty surprised by and intrigued by uh, the product because um, uh, we've we've recently been uh, lucky enough to work with some slayers at at Sub Zero and um, we 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 have a single group slayer espresso that we're playing around with lowered uh, lowered the pump pressure as was um, sort of stipulated in the in the paper by Michael and Chris that you need to go sort of between five and six bars. And got some really, really interesting results. And I, I, I kind of had to say, I don't know if I'd categorize the coffee that you make with it as espresso. It just tastes completely different, but interesting. Yeah, it does. And the, I guess the other as, the aspect to look at here is, um, is roast style as well. Um, I, I know from myself of being able to play with, uh, under this kind of environment and um, with so many different coffees um, that obviously roast is going to play uh, or roast degree is going to play a huge part in this um, because, you know, we, we've all, even though everyone kind of roasts to their own style, um, it, it's, it's, we're, we're still roasting to 
um, to these set parameters or these set machine parameters um, that no one can really kind of um, really push forward that that challenge of, of why are we setting up machines to this now when we when we can do it differently so I think until until people start to you know there's a bit more flexibility around machines or people are experimenting a bit more then we can start to adjust our roast profiles and um, and, and play even further to get more out of coffee yeah and um, it's interesting that you bring up roasting there because I find it particularly I find it quite amazing to be honest that there are roasters out there that can roast to uh, in order to achieve a specific result uh, and to give you an example you've got people like yourself who met, who have just mentioned that you, you you may tweak a roast to achieve a different result or there's people like Sam Cora from Owner Coffee who is mm-hmm. obviously a gun roaster and he you know the stories I hear about him roasting um, you know to achieve certain things I don't know like for example their roasting of milk coffee is some of the best in the industry and and um, you look at it, and it's quite dark. Or, or and and the way he roasted for Hugh Kelly in 2017 when he was in um, uh, competing in the World Brewster Championship in Seoul, mm-hmm. you know, uh, going for that lower dose, higher extraction type shot. Um, and Ben Tuvey, who who roasts, who, who does a bit of roasting for Sub Zero Coffee, he'll 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 experiment with the water and think, okay, with with this water in mind, the water that you're using at that location, I need to result this way. Pretty incredible that roasters can do that. It's a skill that must be acquired over many years, I gather. Yeah, it's again, it comes down to understanding your equipment and, and not just understanding your if, if you're a roaster, not just understanding your roasting equipment, but understanding the 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 brewing equipment, whether it's espresso or, or filter brewing or anything like that. And and from a barista side, um, you know, going further than just understanding the tools that are in front of you. Um, and I don't think we have enough in that of that in the in the industry where where people are, are looking at the whole picture. Um, there's too many instances where we're you know each each kind of part of our chain of the industry is only focusing on on their their section. Um, so when you do get people like Sammy, like like Ben, who are um, you know who who can make exceptional coffee but also by you know being able to roast it and in an exceptional way um their understanding um of kind of that whole um that whole piece um roasting and brewing is just above and beyond so you know when you're able to to look at a profile and um, that's something i enjoy doing is looking at somebody's profile and and asking them a few questions just about what they're getting out of the coffee and what they're not getting out of the coffee and then being able to go, right, change this, change this, change that. Um, and they execute it and it works. Mm. But you, you need to have a broader understanding of, of coffee, not just not just what's what's in front of you, I think. Yeah, and um, I guess having, uh, for, for baristas that may be listening to this, having a good relationship with your roaster um, and, and um, you know, having... Constructive dialogue is always helpful. I mean, um, I, th- I feel like in my career, I, one of my great flaws is I wasn't, I didn't have enough, or I haven't had enough good relationships with people that roast the coffee for me. So, which is something I'm definitely, you know, improving with. You know, now starting to work with Ben a little bit more. It's, um, you know, he's very, he, you know, he 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 can come taste the coffee and sort of know what to do straight away, which is unbelievable. But John, I do want to ask you. 
um, a few questions about your competition career. You yes. mentioned that you started competing in the UK. You won the UK Bristol Championship in what year? Uh, so the first time was 2010. First time? So how many times did you win it? First time. <laughs> Second time was 2011. And third time was 2013. Trifecta. Yeah. And how many times have you won New Zealand? Uh, New Zealand was just once in, in 2018. So I, I had a bit of time off between moving to New Zealand and obviously had to wait a couple of years before I could compete. And um, yeah, so won 20, 2018 um, and then coached and, and roasted coffee for, for Dub Chen, who, had, um, who won the 2019. So are you the most, have you won the most national competitions? No, no, no. I think, oh. Uh, well, I know um, Stefanos from Greece has, has won a lot more than me. Um, I think he won like seven in a row at least or something like that. Jesus. I'm sure someone can, can correct us. But no, I'm, I'm, I'm sure there's people that have won, won more than me. So. Well, Agnieszka Ruska seems to win everything every year. Um, yeah, exactly. What, what, a, yeah. What, a, what a talented barista she is. Um, coffee and Good Spirits, Brewers Cup. Lats out and and you know chucking a lazy world Bristol championship uh, coffee masters <laughs> as well. Um, yeah, exactly. She's got trophies and medals hanging off her. It's um it's incredible. Yeah, yeah. Mm. Um. So all right. So, do you have a favorite among all those? Like of of the championships you won in barista in the barista category? Do you have a favorite? Um. In terms of what I've done, or yeah, like you know, what which routine sort of was the most significant for you in that? Because I, I feel like when when you're competing in a barista competition, you're trying to sort of um, display a message, or you know, you're really mm. you're really harnessing your creativity to make a routine or product sort of thing. Did you have one that you perhaps liked the most, or found the most rewarding, or you you thought you know this will leave you a legacy in the coffee industry? Is there a particular one? I think they all they all had um, their own little pieces that you know meant a lot to me. The that um, 20, 2011, um, I managed to make finals, uh, and WBC was actually in Colombia at the time, so that was an insane experience in itself. But twenty eleven for me was uh, about kind of making up for the mistakes that I thought I'd made in twenty ten. Um, and, and I just wanted to be able to make semifinals then because in 2010, I'd actually missed out on the semifinals at WBC by half a point. Um, just through silly mistakes, you know? Yep. Um, and, and yeah, so 20, 2011 was, was just, uh, you know, I, I set myself goals and I, and I hit those, I, I went beyond those goals. So that was big. Um, but 20, 2013 for me was, um, I really dived into, um, something that I thought was, um, you know, absolutely mind blowing. Once you really kind of dive into it, in terms of the how, how the human sensory development process, um, and you know, I was doing R and D and 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 research and and experiments and all that kind of jazz for for quite a long time, and that was an in, an insane setup and and routine um, that. I, I should have practiced more and I should have done a, a hell of a lot better, but I was quite proud of, of how much I'd actually put together back then. Yeah. Um, um, interesting you bring that up. I do recall Angus Mackey doing a very um, informative routine in last year at the nationals in Australia uh, on, mm. on gastronomy, I believe it was, and, and the human perception of, of flavors and 
it was, yeah, it was quite incredible. Mm. Yeah, it's a, yeah. I think every every single one had their own thing. Like I think my favorite signature drink was from 2011 um, in, in Colombia. Um, my my favorite routine was probably 2013 um, in Melbourne. Um, my, you know, I was very lucky that all of my competition coffees have been um, exceptional. I I feel like anyway. Um, well, they must have been. And, yeah, they got you that far. Yeah. Yeah. And then, you know, and, and 2018 was, um, again, it was it was kind of, you know, I guess something that I wanted to prove to myself that I could still kind of jump in there and, and do these kind of things as, as you know, um, it was quite stressful. I, I wasn't exactly well um, throughout that whole process. Uh, I was quite ill for about six months or so. Oh, no. um, and... You know, and I know my brain just wasn't functioning right, and I was very lucky to have the support of someone like Sam Cora, um, who who really just like absolutely stepped up because um, I had my uh, my fiance um, who is not in coffee. Um, she was helping me out, and um, you know, this is the first time that she'd seen anything like this kind of thing, and um, and it was a an overwhelming experience for her so we were both very lucky that you know we had the support of sam and um and and some of the guys were over uh, gus was over and, and maddie lewin was over in amsterdam as well um hugh kelly and um so very very fortunate to have um you know someone in my corner that i could you know when it comes to coffee you just trust sam cora right it's you don't have to question anything that i i didn't feel like i had to question anything that he did i just had all my faith in him um, well, yeah, it's it's a... it's interesting you bring that up because if anyone's watched the Coffee Man documentary, which is documents the the journey of Sasha Sestik and him winning uh, the the World Barista Champion Championship in 2015, you'll notice that mm-hmm. he was quite um, you know he was very ill, seemed to have some sort of virus the the night before the yeah. final, and then yeah. you know he's completely relying on people like you you just mentioned uh, Sam Cora and Hugh Kelly and whoever else was part of his entourage in, on that journey. Um, you got to, you, it's, it's, uh, I always say it's a team, Brewster competitions are a team sport. Um, and, um, you know, those with you know, good teams behind them and, and, and have a well-structured sort of approach to it because it, it's, it's very intense. Like you, you, you do train a lot of hours and like your mind just, it's like it's like putting your brain through a washing dryer. Sometimes I think barista competition is. I only competed. Yeah. I only competed in one season, but um, you know when you're backstage and you see, um, like you wonder. That I I never wonder why you know owner coffee do so well in the in the Australian barista championships and Brewers Cup because um, you know they 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 know how to win and they they're a team and the camaraderie in that organisation um, in general, not just towards uh, competition, is. It's pretty special, and that's 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 definitely a, a, a attributing factor to why they why they've been so successful, and, and perhaps why their success influenced you in in twenty eighteen. Yeah, it was a um, you know back back in twenty twelve when I met Sasha, um, you know we, we you know we clicked quite well uh, very early on, and and twenty I think it was twenty thirteen. 2014, um, I'd gone over to Oz um, and worked with the guys a couple of times. I remember my first time there, I was I was at Honor for about a week and there was, I think, all of them competing, which was stressful in itself. So I was tasting coffee left, right and centre and um, 
uh, you know, watching routines here and there. And, and it was a, it was a crazy experience, but you're right. You know, you never, I've never seen that kind of level of, um, of, you know, love for, for one another, um, you know, outside of that crew and, um, off the back of that, uh, working with all the guys in 2014 again, and, um, you know, and, and Sasha kind of just missing out by, you know, from making a mistake in the, in the finals of Aussie champs and, um, and then coming back in 2015, um, I, I honestly don't think that, um, you know, between myself, Sam Corey, Kelly and, and Hide, I, I don't think I will ever see or feel like there was a, a, a better crew um, that achieved uh, what we achieved back then. Um, it was uh, uh, quite an insane experience. Mm, competitions are they're a hell of a thing um, but we, we we don't have I mean I could stay and talk to you about this all night John mm. but I do have a few more questions I want to ask you that are yes. unrelated to competition what do you think the future holds for the specialty coffee industry in a post-COVID world so um, you know COVID's obviously been a pretty significant hit to sort of the uh, the global economy as a whole but I don't think there's you know really any market that's not been impacted in some way mm specialty coffee or coffee in general is already under threat is under an existential threat from climate change um, that that stands to impact coffee significantly over the next you know few decades and mm. um, you know I think coronavirus will 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 sort of alter things as well what do you think could change out of this I, I hope that um, and and you know the media probably, shows the opposite of what I'm hoping but I do hope that um, people start becoming a little bit more mindful of, of you know eat, not just each other but um, you know our practices and what we're doing and and being more mindful of, of waste and and things like that because we I feel like in coffee we're the whole industry we're, we're just insanely wasteful um, and, and that you know causes a lot of issues down the line and now that we, you know even before before covid we you know like you said we're, we're looking at um such a huge change in the industry over the next few decades um that we have to start thinking differently and i think i kind of feel like covid is is putting that pressure on us to to think differently and think alternatively to to how we're going to manage our industry um, i don't think anything's really being approached yet um but yeah we we have to change how we do things well it's um, um it's interesting because coffee is in australia at the very least I, I can't comment on that for any other nations but it's kind of like this expectation people have that you know i want my coffee within five minutes have of ordering it it must cost me four dollars australian or less and mm. you should shut the f up and make it for me that's that's kind of the way people view view coffee unfortunately here and, you know, I don't think, you know, the, the, a lot of people, you know, the, there's been a lot of progress over the years in having people understand the product. And, you know, there's a lot of, there's a far more people now than there used to be that desire higher echelons of coffee. And that's kind of, you know, what I do for a living at the moment um, is, is selling that coffee. But um, I think that culture, cultural element of, element of it will have to change at some point because, there'll be a rude shock for these people when they can't always go to 7-Eleven and get a $1 coffee or, um, you know, get the $4 latte. 
Yeah, at the end of the day, um, it, it's not just specialty coffee that's going to become more expensive. It's going to be that the whole market is going to be slowly, slowly creeping up. Where, yeah, even that that one dollar coffee at the, um, you know, the the local shop or even the gas station, you know, is going to end up being at some point two dollars, and um, and that's not necessarily based on quality, but it's it's based on you know everything our whole industry. Train, changing drastically and, and at, at a rapid pace as well. So, um, yeah, we, we need to, every part of the market needs to look at things differently. Um, equipment manufacturers, coffee producers, uh, consultants, trainers, um, coffee roasters, the whole lot. We need to look at things in a, in a different perspective um, to the point of, you know, all, all these little things that we're doing now, you know, using a little bit less coffee to be able to achieve more or, or better tasting coffee. All these things can actually kind of help um, some parts of the industry. But uh, obviously now we're at a different different part or different problem uh, in terms of um, global supply and, and how that's looking with, with, you know, a lot of farmers probably sitting on a lot of coffee at the moment. Um, and, and all of the natural disasters as well going on around uh, around the world as well, and wiping out coffee farms left, right, and centre. Um, we're, we're we're not in a good position, and we we need to start, you know, making a change uh, across the whole chain. Yeah, and and the unfortunate reality of of a lot of this is that there's an economics term, John, called negative externalities, and that what what that sort right. of suggests is that the impacts of say climate change are most felt by um, the the negative externalities that that are the, the negative impacts of climate change are most felt by um, those that are more vulnerable or in those countries that are that are sort of um, let's uh, to to put it lightly the uh, of a lower socioeconomic background mm-hmm. so to speak so yep. the, the the you know in essence the most vulnerable feel feel the effects of climate change the most um, they that in this context would be coffee producers so mm-hmm. um, you know. You're right. We do have to. We do have to change a lot of our consumer behaviour. I think a lot of this is, um, you know, a, a lot of this is on um, us as on the consumption side of coffee. We we probably need to change our behaviour and practices. But um, because if we don't, there's an there's an existential uh, threat to coffee. So coffee, of course, yeah. John is a commodity. So it's traded um, traded uh, according to market forces. And those being most uh, pr- uh, perhaps most importantly, demand and supply, and the, l- the law of supply would suggest that, or laws of demand and supply sort of would suggest that if you've got a lower supply, that demand would be higher. If you've got an increased supply, so as there was in the Brazilian harvest two years ago, mm-hmm. demand is lower. Uh, farmers get uh, a lower price for their coffee, and um, in many cases, the the price they get for the coffee is lower than the cost of production. Which is why would you want to be in coffee if you're doing that? You, you wouldn't. Exactly. So we could see a lot of farmers choose to leave the, uh, leave the industry or stop growing coffee because it costs them money. Yeah, yeah. They, where, where's, what's the point, you know? And, and that's, um, you know, going into this year pre, pre-COVID and, and, uh, and a little bit disappointing, but part of the reason, well, a big, the big reason why I wanted to do competition again this year was to, to look at that other you know that end of of our market, and and start to address ways of being able to deal with climate change, and and look at um, how coffee producers are working, and and is there a, a not just a not necessarily a better way of doing things, but 
a way of being able to adapt as the the, the climate changes because at the end of the day it, it's it's changing and and um, you know unless we are making a huge change globally now um, these coffee producers everywhere are going to be constantly battling um, with all these challenges so for from a lot of my competition routine um, this year was going to be based around, you know, are there alternative ways to be able to make, you know, lower growing coffee or, or lower or perceived quality coffee better? Um, and, and I believe that, that we can, because at the end of the day, that, that kind of growing, uh, you know, that, that farmland that is suitable for coffee is slowly going to shrink over the next few decades. And um, well, not slowly, probably rapidly, um, and we need to be able to adapt to that, or producers need to be able to adapt to that, and need to know how to adapt to that. Mm. Um, so it was a, um, you know, the coffees that I was looking at were, were coffees from Project Origin, coffees that I have are, are coffees from Project Origin, and and a project that Sash had worked with um, uh, some producers in Nicaragua, and these were you know low altitude, relatively low altitude growing um, coffees. Um, that you know, as little as four years ago, were um, were not even fit for export. They were they were being sold for for what was it less than or somewhere between twenty and, and forty cents per pound. Um, and these were going to be your so world Bristol competition coffees. These these were going to be my my uh, well, we were going to be my NZBC coffees. So that in four years, what what Sasha and then these producers have done to turn these farms around to do from from producing like coffee that was just not even um you know not even good for for anything basically to in my mind basically some of the best coffees that i've ever tasted in in my life um is is just mind-blowing to see that it's been done in in such a short space of time and you Um, you uh sorry to interrupt john but you're you're selling some of these coffees now right now that you're not going to be competing in the nz barista championship which i'll touch on in a second but you you're you have some of these coffees up for sale correct yes so i um uh, all in all i'd I'd chosen five coffees um i had three three full service um and a couple of backups um, and when they arrived in New Zealand last November, I, I vacpacked them all down into individual batches um, to suit my roaster and froze them. And um, and and I I, I want to be able to share these with people now um, because obviously you know we all, we all know that when it comes to competition, um, it's not often that people get to share these coffees uh, much further than the the four people that are sitting in front of them judging them. Um, so now I have this opportunity to be able to share a bit of this story um, and, and the coffees that go along with it and, and show what a remarkable job these producers have done to, to turn something completely on its head. Well, put me down for some, John. I think I'll, I'll certainly get some and, and share them with the good folk of Melbourne once the lockdown finishes. So I very much look forward to, to, awesome. to getting my hands on some of those. But um, um, I just wanted to uh, just quickly highlight... Um, I really don't. Uh, going back to uh, what we were talking about just before this conversa- uh, this particular topic, we really don't want producers subsidising, you know, Australians and, and Kiwis perhaps, you know, drinking lattes. It it just doesn't seem right. But uh, I I really mm. wanted to get that point in there. Sorry, John. But um, yeah, it's it's incredible work that um, that uh, Project Origin have done at that farm, and I've heard I've heard stories, but I haven't tried any coffee from so much from Finca L R Ball. Is that correct? 
That's correct, yeah. And yeah. and um, and some other farms. Uh, so there was a, yeah another farm that was a little bit lower um, in altitudes, uh, managed by the same people uh, called Finca Miranda, mm-hmm. um, and that was actually the first coffee that I I tasted. Um, and like the moment that it landed here, I'd um, Sammy had sent over a roasted sample and a green sample, and I tasted his roasted sample, and then I roasted up the the green and and was just straight away because um, prior prior to that my I had had a discussion with Sash about my concept and what I wanted to communicate, and he just said straight away, "I know exactly the, the, you know, the farms that we're going to look at for you." So, um, it, it just all, you know, fell into place perfectly. Fantastic. Well, um, John, I could I could stay and chat with you for hours, but I, uh, I'm sure you've got things that you need to do. It's uh, it's what is it now? It's five forty. Australian time, which would make it 7.40 Kiwi time. You've got a young child. You probably need to tuck into bed. Um, but I do want to ask you one question that I do try and get to, to, to – I do try and ask um, most of the guests once, once we conclude. What are some of the best coffees you've ever had? No particular order. Give us a one, two, three. The LR balls don't count because we've just spoken at length about those. <laughs> um, hit us with a few of your favourites, John Gordon. Um, back in 20, uh, when was this? 2011, it might've been, um, I used, uh, Ethiopian, a washed Ethiopian, um, uh, Suka Kudo. That's, uh, you know, a regional coffee, but it was just, it was mind blowing. It was so good to the point where, um, in, this is in the UK. I actually named my cat after that, that coffee. You named um, a cat after it. That's a, that's a big I'm, call. Yeah, yeah, it was um, it was just such a stunning, like elegant coffee, like absolutely insane. And just on um, a side note, there, John, the uh, Ethiopia you may have noticed just had their first ever cup of excellence auction. Yeah, which is a yeah. which a hu- oh, yeah. is a huge step forward. And congratulations to the cup of excellence for for hosting I, that. Honestly, Ethiopia is um, my just all time favorite country. Been there a, a couple of times, and the the last time I actually left. Um, and I and I'm I'm to my detriment. My partner kind of gives me a little bit of flack about it, but I'm not the most emotional person. Mm. Um, but the last time I left Ethiopia, um, I literally standing at the airport was just bawling my eyes out. Um, I, I love that country and, and the people there so much. It's it's insane. So um, no, I can yeah, I can that, I can feel that. Yeah, that's. Um, so that, yeah, back then that's probably one of my like I just always remember that coffee without a doubt. Um, aside from that, um, uh, one of two coffees that I'd used in in competition at uh, WBC in 2010 um, was actually um, uh, an El Salvador coffee um, from the the famous Ada. Um, it was Finca Muritania, a uh, natural back then, and it was just. It was the first time I ever had a natural that was just so insanely clean. Mm. Um, and, yeah, it just – it was, you know, like strawberries and cream, um, a crazy clean coffee. So. Yeah, I'm on, the, I'm on the hunt for some Finca Kilimanjaro. 
I've got some coming. I've got some washes coming. Well, I I love you know whenever I have a problem and I bring it up, it always gets solved. So um. yeah, I was talking to Ada um, a few weeks back, and and she shared some coffees, and and I was like, I'll take some of that, and I've got a, a natural from a, another farm of hers as well coming. All right, well, I'll just have to chuck that in the order of the of the, yeah. of the Nicaraguans then, because I it, this is this is kind of like a habit of mine. Like this is how Sub Zero Coffee almost started, I guess, is because I'd look on the internet. And see all these coffees that I literally cannot get, and think, oh Jesus! Imagine mm. if this is all in the one shop. Um, and that's kind of more or less how Sub Zero Coffee started. But oh man, I'm I've been I've never tried any coffee from Finca Kilimanjaro, and I'm I've been dying to for years. So it's good Beautiful. to know, John Gordon. Great to know. Yeah, yeah. She's she's an amazing person, and and um, you know, going going back to one of your earlier questions about kind of. Uh, inspirational people and stuff like that. Um, uh, Ada is definitely one of those for me. Um, I'm going to have to get, try yeah. and get her onto the podcast because she's got a terrific story that I've heard plenty about. Yeah. And um, yeah. Ada, if you're listening, I'm coming for you. Yeah, yeah, she's uh, an amazing human. Yeah. And last one, John. Last coffee that is just a mind blower. One more. Last coffee uh, would probably actually have to be, and I. Um, don't know the farm, but it was 2014 El Salvador COE, um, Jorge, um, it was a natural Pacamara. I think he won with, um, I can't think of the farm's name. Um, but I, I, I do remember again, it was one of those scenarios of hang on Pacamara and the natural, and it was just epic, absolutely mm-hmm. epic. Um, and that was the first time that I met him. And, and again, he's, he's an amazing human and, and just such a, um, a beautiful person to talk with. And um, that, that coffee was just exceptional. Yeah. Well, you, you bring up El Salvador producers and, and we were just talking about Project Origin before and it, it brings to mind the, um, the, the recent and tragic loss of Gilberto mm. Baruana. Uh, Bar- yeah. uh, I hope I'm pronouncing that correctly, but uh, who recently passed away due to COVID-19, which is a terrible loss for the mm. industry and, his coffees are fantastic, so um, I'm glad I remembered that. But if I could, yeah, if we could just pay a little, uh, just wanted to pay my respect to to him and his family. The coffee is fantastic. We're lucky enough to serve some at Sub Zero. Yeah. Um, yeah. If anyone um, in in your uh, travels or in your coffee um, career from now is lucky enough to drink coffee from Los Pirineos, um, you know, throw a thought out there for Gilberto and his family. That's truly outstanding yeah. coffee and. Uh, very uh, just wanted to pass my condolences on to that family that's a terrible loss yeah definitely definitely but john we got to finish on a positive mate it's been fantastic to um been fantastic to have you on thank you so much for coming on and um it's uh yeah i we first we first met in person in brazil a few years ago when you were working uh doing a job for san remo at the world brewers cup and um yeah i've always wanted to 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 ask you a few questions and here you are on the podcast. It's been it's been fantastic having you on. Oh, good man. Any any time. I'm always up for chats, mate. It's it's fantastic. Hey, when's the hive thing coming? Oh, we're getting there, getting there slowly. So it's one of those. Uh, it's it's on the list to to um to to get it all up and running. I'm just I'm you know I'm very uh I get a bit scared of, of kind of putting these things out there. So I need yeah, to well, just I had it a... up a little bit and. <laughs> Yeah, I had a bit of a um, I had a bit of a I had a bit of a two week uh, hiatus from the podcast. If, if someone some people will notice, but um, <laughs> yeah, had a few had a few 
you know, the, the coronavirus is wreaking havoc, obviously, over here in Melbourne and, and sort of mm. has, has delayed, you know, it just, every day is different at the moment. So um, apologies to anyone for, for, for not having the podcast ready every Monday. I, I promise I'll be better. It's, it's definitely, and it's more of a, a reason now for me to get back on to, to releasing Hive out there so that, you know, everyone that is dealing with these kind of things can start to share some of their stories and, um, and, and, everyone globally start, you know, trying to help each other out um, in, a, in the digital realm um, soon as we can't do it face-to-face. So, yeah, I, I hope to get it up and going ASAP. Well, yeah, I'll, I'll um, yeah, I'll certainly be putting the bunter and burner on you as, as much as I can, John Gordon. But Thanks, once again, man. thank you so much for coming on. I look forward to getting some of that coffee that, um, that, that we spoke about earlier that you're selling. So if anyone wants to buy it, where do they buy it? Uh, so my website, it's all up on uh, and, and live and going uh, individually and, and in packs as well. Um, so Gorilla, uh, what is it? Gorilla Gear uh, dot coffee. Um, it's a bit of an unusual. Uh, I got the old dot coffee a couple of years ago. Um, so yeah, my web website's up and up and running, um, and I do ship worldwide as well. Um, good old FedEx. Thank you, FedEx. FedEx. I should probably get onto the FedEx. My my courier company's not doing it for me at the moment. So, <laughs> um, well, John, I'll let you go, mate. Thank you so much for coming on, and yeah, look forward to to fun. talking to you and hopefully seeing you again soon. Yeah, thanks, mate. Thanks for having me. No worries. And as always, everyone, stay cool. Yeah.